In October 1903, the Miami News published the memoirs of Mrs. Rose Richards, maiden name Wagner. With the streets of a new city rapidly overtaking her father's pioneer homestead, she recounted tales of her life growing up as a young girl on the South Florida frontier, detailing her recollections of the difficult years of the Civil War. A painful interlude in American history, the war brought to Biscayne Bay a surreal period of suspended animation, cut off from the outside world by the Union blockade, while strange events like the following played out at home. Quote, Captain English, with a number of sailors from the blockade steamer, came to Miami, calling first on Dr. Fletcher and asking him to take the oath of allegiance. Upon his refusal to do so, he was told to make up his mind by the time they returned from up the river, where they had some business to attend to. They passed by our house without saying a word to any of us. Soon afterward, a big black smoke was seen to arise from where Mr. Lewis's factory had been standing, and which could be seen by ourselves and also by the people living in Miami. Fear was pictured on our faces, we thinking the time had come when we would be left homeless. The same thoughts were uppermost with nearly everybody, and no wonder suspicion ruled supreme with one and all. Thank goodness we were not disturbed by this party. They returned to Miami and did not have to ask Mr. Fletcher the second time to comply to the request made of him a few hours before. End quote. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 15, A House Divided. How do we explain the causes of the Civil War? The intricate details of the events that led up to the secession of the southern states are hopelessly beyond the reach of our humble Miami story. And yet, the events at home cannot be understood without attempting to give some context. At its root, the reason for the war was simple. It was no longer possible for the growing nation to ignore the dark ulcer at the heart of its success. The barbaric forced migration of millions of Africans their savage enslavement and reduction to mere property, the bondage of their children and their children's children for countless generations, the buying, selling, and reselling on the auction block, the ripping apart of families, the sadistic forced breeding, rape, and torture, the driving beneath the whip and the chain in the fields, and the near total obliteration of all identity. America's pathway to domination is marred by countless stains, but it is these, perhaps, that have exacted the greatest cost, whose toll we must pay to this very day with the anger and inequity that still runs through the fractures of American society. At its core, slavery was an economic phenomenon. Indeed, it was the awesome economic power of free labor 
that had built the entire new world over the course of many centuries. The long-standing scaffold that had borne the weight of two continents as they grew to enormous proportions. But by the time the United States was born, the northern colonies had developed a more diversified economy of manufacturing, finance, and other skilled services, and thus lessened their dependence on large quantities of unskilled labor. The moral outrage of God-fearing people had slowly gained a foothold in the North, and a decades-long process of abolishing slavery took place. Many northern colonies entered the nation as so-called free states, and most of the others got there eventually. But in the agricultural economy of the South, slavery had remained entwined with the very bedrock of society, and by the mid-1800s had reached truly extraordinary dimensions, a wretched knot by which unspeakable brutality and unprecedented prosperity had become impossibly entangled. The invention of the cotton gin in 1793 had put this engine of profit into overdrive, allowing production of the highly sought-after cotton crop to be limited only by how much land could be cultivated and how fast enslaved people could harvest it. Cotton plantations had swept across the land, replacing all other crops, and with financing from as far away as London, this lucrative trade had grown to enormous global proportions, with sophisticated cotton corporations and layers of middle managers whose prime directive was to ensure the slaves were driven as hard as possible. King Cotton, as it was known, ruled the Deep South, and the plantation owners grew impossibly rich, rising through the ranks of Southern society to control the highest offices of government from Virginia to Texas. Even farther south than the South was Florida, which had been touched by slavery in singular fashion. Beyond the horrors of the cotton plantations, Florida, under British and Spanish rule, had been a safe haven, a sanctuary for runaway slaves who risked death to disappear across the border, where they encountered kindred spirits in the Seminoles. As we've learned previously, many had finally emerged from the hammocks when they reached Biscayne Bay, making their final escape to the Bahamas from Key Biscayne. It was this loss of valuable human property to Florida that had been a key factor in the First Seminole War, and the snatching of the unruly territory from Spain at the end of that conflict. With Florida finally in U.S. hands, it was only natural that the slaveholding culture of the neighboring cotton states poured across the border, and before long, prosperous cotton plantations surrounded the capital of Tallahassee, which became the epicenter of Florida's cotton and slave economies. We find here the beginnings of the modern dichotomy between North and South Florida culture. While Southern society quickly overtook North Florida, it had been buffeted back by the constant warfare with the Seminoles and prevented from propagating down the length of the peninsula. The sparse population of South Florida had retained an air of something different. Oriented towards the sea, the people of the Keys and Biscayne Bay were exposed to a rich diversity of characters from all over the world, 
instilling in them a relatively progressive outlook on people of different complexions. But South Florida was by no means untouched by slavery. The black Bahamians who were a constant presence in the Keys and who make up a sizable segment of modern Miami-Dade County were here because of that British colony's long history with the slave trade. Anecdotes from contemporary writers are riddled with casual mentions of slavery, such as one account of Jacob Hausman, who, after the Indian Key Massacre, quote, cleared out for good, took everything he had left to Key West to sell at auction his Negroes, boats, and vessels, end quote. But even closer to home, we have met in the personages of Richard Fitzpatrick and his nephew, William English, true Southern planters from Charleston, a bastion of the Deep South, whose slaves worked the fields beneath the towers of today's Central Business District and were housed in the oldest building that today stands in Miami-Dade County, William English's Longhouse. Slavery had been one of the most contentious national issues since the country's inception, but it was the rapid outward expansion of U.S. territory that brought it to a boil. As new lands came under U.S. control, the question of whether the barbaric practice would be allowed in those territories came up again and again. The issue was not just a moral one, but also a political and cultural one. As more slave states joined the Union, anti-slavery elements in the North began to fear the growing power of the, quote, slaveocracy, which they were concerned could come to dominate the federal government and send the nation irreversibly towards a dystopian future. Meanwhile, the southern states feared, not without reason, that northern control of Congress would allow free state industrialists to move in and monopolize the development of southern infrastructure, reaping the profits while slowly undermining the southern way of life. For decades, the issue had been kept at bay by a series of compromises designed to maintain the balance of power. And in the meantime, the moral, legal, and political debate played out across the nation and in the halls of government. But as time went on and the organization of the Western territories continued, growing dissatisfaction and violent outbursts made it harder to deny the intractability of the problem. During the 1850s, the rise of the new anti-slavery Republican Party and its most eloquent orator, a mild-mannered attorney from the Midwest named Abraham Lincoln, grew to pose a formidable threat to the pro-slavery Democrat Party that represented Southern interests, and fervent whispers of secession began to simmer beneath the surface. Things came to a head with the presidential election of 1860, which Lincoln, who opposed the expansion of slavery into new U.S. states and territories, won. Feeling their backs were against the wall, the Southern states turned to desperate measures, and in quick succession, seven states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, declared their membership in the United States null and void, and combined to create a new nation, the Confederate States of America. In the coming months, they would be joined by Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Refusing to recognize the Confederacy, President Lincoln declared secession illegal and its leadership outlaws, 
he ordered all forts in the South to be held. When Confederate troops moved to take Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in April 1861, they met resistance and fired upon the Union troops occupying the fort. As historian Alan Nevins writes, quote, The thunderclap of Sumter produced a startling crystallization of northern sentiment. Anger swept the land. From every side came news of mass meetings, speeches, resolutions, tenders of business support, the muster of companies and regiments, the determined action of governors and legislatures. End quote. The Civil War had begun. This is, of course, the shortest possible version of events, and leaves out tremendous complexity that we implore listeners to delve into further. Likewise, the countless actions and campaigns of the war are far beyond our scope. Suffice it to say, it was bad. The worst, in fact, that America has ever endured. Many military scholars consider the armies of the Union and Confederacy each to have been among the best in the world at the beginning of the war, and they threw themselves at each other with a ferocity that only the deepest conviction can call forth. Legendary Union generals such as Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman faced off against equally formidable Confederate counterparts in the likes of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. Rapid advancements were made in the mechanization of warfare, and more than a million American lives were lost to cannon and rifle fire, starvation, disease, and retribution and war crimes carried out by both sides. More young American soldiers were killed on these battlegrounds than in all other U.S. wars combined. Families were torn apart. Brother was pitted against brother, and many towns especially in the South, were completely leveled. Confederate Florida, however, was far from the front lines. Tucked away behind the border states of Dixie and sporting the smallest population and least productive economy, Florida was of comparatively little strategic value to either side. Throughout the war, its primary contribution to the rebel war effort was as a source of food, as the cattle farms of northern Florida provided a sizable portion of the troops' sustenance. But the main contact with the enemy was via the sea, where the Union Navy's blockade made northern ships a constant presence. Recognizing that the South's monolithic cotton-based economy and reliance on the international market made it vulnerable, the Union implemented the so-called Anaconda Plan, a campaign to blockade every rebel port on the Atlantic, the Gulf, and the Mississippi River, with the goal of surrounding the Confederacy and slowly strangling it to death like a giant boa constrictor. Although Florida had seceded with the rebels, the Confederates never took control of Fort Zachary Taylor on Key West, which remained in Union hands and helped guarantee Union control of the Gulf Stream. This island fortress became a crucial base of operations for the Union blockade. Gunboats out of Key West patrolled the Florida coasts, searching for unauthorized ships and hunting down blockade runners. The primary destination of the runners was the Bahamas, a sleepy British colony with strong southern ties, which suddenly came to life during the war. But Havana, 
Bermuda, and other ports were also popular. In many respects, it was a time reminiscent of the pirate days of old, with smugglers in small fast boats hiding out in the nooks and crannies of the Florida coast, waiting for the right moment to shoot through Union patrols carrying bales of cotton or whatever else of value could be mustered. Many were caught in the act. On January 6, 1863, the captain of the USS Ariel spotted, quote, a suspicious craft in Miami Bay, close under the land, end quote. After a three-hour chase, the Ariel captured the vessel, which turned out to be the smuggling sloop Good Luck from New Smyrna, bound for Nassau. The event was undoubtedly a thrilling spectacle for the people of Biscayne Bay. On land, Florida saw only minor skirmishes throughout the war. In 1862, a Union raid on Cedar Key crippled the Florida Railroad, which connected the Gulf and Atlantic coasts, forcing the Confederates thereafter to ship goods around the peninsula, past Key West and the Florida Reef. St. Augustine and Jacksonville were captured by the Union later that year, and from these strongholds, small incursions inland were mounted to harass the Confederates, disrupt the food supply, and liberate slaves to recruit into the Union army. These expeditions led to many small battles. Fort Myers, abandoned since the Seminole Wars, was reoccupied by Union troops in 1863, and two years later, the tiny Battle of Fort Myers, credited as the southernmost land battle of the war, saw a Confederate attempt to retake the fort repelled. The largest battle in Florida, the only one ever considered a major battle, was the Battle of Olusti, which took place toward the end of the war near the Georgia border. Union forces en route to capture Tallahassee were intercepted and roundly defeated, suffering nearly 2,000 casualties. This decisive loss convinced the Union that further land action in Florida was probably not worth the trouble. But these actions were barely a blip compared to the barbarous bloodshed and destruction occurring further north, and the relative quietude of Florida saw it take up an old role once again, that of a hideout for runaways. Thousands of refugees headed south into the deserted hammocks of the peninsula, setting up tents or lean-tos in the wilderness and getting by as best they could. As the war went on, Confederate soldiers, many of whom had been conscripted against their will, deserted in droves and joined the other exiles in the Florida wilderness, where they did their best to evade Confederate justice. All of this made for an extraordinary mix of people and experiences in Miami, described in intimate detail in the testimony of Rose Wagner. Far from the bloodshed, Dade County became a comparative sanctuary. An early Union Navy dispatch described the shores of Biscayne Bay as, quote, hardly inhabited and of no great consequence except as a convenient resort for pirates, end quote. Despite technically being Confederate territory, no Confederate troops were ever stationed here and men from the Union blockade ships, most notably the USS Sagamore and her captain, Lieutenant Commander Earl English, were free to come ashore to gather coconuts or chop pine lumber. But alongside these ostensibly hostile forces, whose presence was certainly a source of anxiety, 
a steady stream of Confederate deserters and refugees from all over the South also trickled in, setting up shacks in the backwoods or finding lodging with sympathetic homesteaders. It was a period of unlikely neighbors, whose differing opinions on the war were outweighed by their common desire to escape the awful things that were happening around them, and over which they had no control. Rose Wagner's father, William Wagner, was a distinguished member of the intrepid Miami community at the time. After being wounded in the Mexican-American War, he had brought his family to the mystic frontier of South Florida when his old unit was stationed at Fort Dallas for the Third Seminole War. Here, he had sold goods to the Army and prospered, purchasing a homestead in what is now Overtown. The Wagner's house stood near where a small tributary, known today as the Seabold Canal, joins the Miami River. But the original name for this waterway, Wagner Creek, is still in common use today. It was on the banks of Wagner Creek that young Rose spent her girlhood. She was only eight when the first clap of cannon fire rang out at Fort Sumter, but her recollections of the experience, supplemented by military dispatches and other contemporary accounts, paint a rich picture of those difficult years. Opinions on the war and the allegiances of the residents were certainly as varied as the rest of the nation. Dr. Fletcher, for example, was an outspoken Confederate sympathizer, who eventually came under Union suspicion as a co-conspirator with the blockade runners. Other residents actively supported the Union, such as Isaiah Hall, who lived near present-day Matheson Hammock Park and became a pilot for the Union Navy, helping the blockaders navigate the treacherous shallow waters of the bay. Theodore Bissell, a prominent resident and former Dade County representative, also sided with the Union and moved to Key West, from whence he provided useful intel about the environment around Dade County. Sadly, the war claimed the life of at least one resident, Dr. Fletcher's son, Robert. Fighting in the Confederates' 4th Florida Infantry, the boy was witness to the horrific bloodbath at the Battle of Stones River in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where he was captured by the Union. He died in the overcrowded prisons of Camp Butler in Illinois. Perhaps the single most notable event to occur here was the destruction of the lantern at the Cape Florida Lighthouse. In the opening days of the war, a gang of rebel partisans from St. Augustine made their way down Florida's east coast, taking out each light along the way. After darkening St. Augustine, Cape Canaveral, and Jupiter, they came to Cape Florida on the night of August 21, 1861. They masqueraded as messengers from Key West and succeeded in tricking the keeper, Simeon Frau, into opening the door. Once inside, they held Frau and his assistant at gunpoint while they dismantled and destroyed the expensive lighthouse lens and lantern. Sparing their captives' lives, the partisans then departed, and soon thereafter, Simeon Frau withdrew to Key West to wait out the rest of the war. The loss of the light was, indeed, somewhat of a setback to the Union. The darkness caused the loss of several ships throughout the war. In 1863, for example, the Union troop carriers Lucinda and Sparkling Sea were both lost in a single week. Like elsewhere in Florida, 
the blockade had a suffocating effect on Miami. At its commencement, the mailboat from Key West, which was the lifeline that also brought supplies, ended. Unauthorized trips on the water became dangerous, and other than the occasional nerve-wracking visit by Union troops, the small Biscayne Bay community became more isolated than ever. News about the war's progress was rare, and residents weathered much of the ordeal knowing nothing of its developments. All commerce stopped, and families became destitute, forced to make do off the land. Wartime diet was reduced to staples that could be produced locally, such as fish, potatoes, and pumpkins. And Rose Wagner writes of being, quote, compelled to sit down to a dish of Kunti starch scalded in clear water with nothing else to fill up, end quote. Insulated from the abject devastation of the major battlegrounds, the specter of starvation was probably not quite the menace that took so many civilian lives elsewhere. But basic provisions were scarce enough to compel many to move away. Of those who remained, it was soon resolved that someone must make the daring run for supplies. Smuggling from Biscayne Bay is a hallmark of our history beginning with the old pirate hideouts of Black Caesar's day. Civil War blockade running holds a place in this lineage, and no doubt some useful principles were picked up during the Civil War that would later be passed down. Miami's first prolific blockade runner was John Adams, who lived near the Everglades on the South Fork of the Miami River. On multiple occasions, he took advantage of the darkened lighthouse to slip right through the Union's fingers. He was active throughout the Florida coast and was soon on Union radar, leading to a cat-and-mouse hunt which ultimately ended with his capture and imprisonment in Key West. Soon thereafter, George Lewis took over the role of runner for the community. A man with deep ties to the area, his family owned one of the original Spanish land donations south of the river. Before the war, Lewis had gone into the Kunti business with George Ferguson, eventually buying out Ferguson's interest in the Kunti mill. But soon, he too drew the ire of the Union Navy. This situation led to the menacing destruction of the Kunti mill by Captain English and his men, as documented by Rose Wagner in our opening scene. George Lewis was eventually captured in January 1864, while hiding out near Fort Myers. But his old business partner George Ferguson by now a respectable name in Key West, vouched for him and soon got him released. Many more stories exist of these days in Dade County, but the saga of the Civil War is a long one, and we must move on towards its final act. In the battlefields of the war-torn states to the north, the tide had turned against the Confederates by the end of the war's second year. The Emancipation Proclamation enacted by Lincoln on New Year's Day, 1863, instantly changed the legal status of all enslaved people in the Confederate states to free, and further swelled the ranks of the Union Army with black regiments. Despite their less-than-equal treatment in the Union Army, these soldiers fought heroically for their very freedom, and as Union troops swept into Confederate territory, newly freed blacks eagerly took up arms against their oppressors. In 1864, 
any remaining hopes for a political resolution were dashed with Lincoln's re-election. Only a week later, General Sherman began his legendary march to the sea, a cataclysmic scorched-earth campaign which left the trail of total destruction from Atlanta to Savannah, splitting the Confederacy in two and crippling its ability to make war. Four months later, in April 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, and Confederate forces across the country rapidly followed suit. The Civil War was a humiliating defeat for the South. Though it is still debated whether the Confederacy ever really stood a chance, the way things played out left the Southern states utterly pulverized. The North had more people, better infrastructure, and a more diversified economy, all of which allowed it to sustain a ferocious campaign on multiple fronts for four whole years. As the war came to an end, Florida Governor John Milton, a dyed-in-the-wool Confederate, shot himself in the head. And soon thereafter, Union troops moved into Tallahassee, reading out loud the Emancipation Proclamation and raising the flag of the United States of America over the Capitol. Florida had seceded from the Union, and for a few years had claimed to belong to a different nation. But it now returned to control of the U.S. Army, and it would have to make some major concessions to regain statehood and representation in Washington. In the meantime, the return of peace released a massive reorganization of displaced people. An extraordinary flurry of activity swept over Dade County, as people of all creeds poured into the area going to and fro. Many were Confederates fleeing Union justice. Many more were Union forces seeking to give them just that. Others were refugees on their way to some new chapter in their lives, and still others were merchants, hustlers, or conmen seeking to take advantage of the chaos and desperation. The U.S. suspected that the Confederate president himself Jefferson Davis was attempting to escape to the Caribbean via South Florida, and thus Navy steamers guarded every entrance to the bay. Although Davis was quickly captured in Georgia, his Secretary of War, John C. Breckinridge, did pass through Biscayne Bay. He and his party disguising themselves as wreckers as they made good their escape to Cuba. A member of this party wrote the following vivid description of their approach to Fort Dallas. Quote, As we neared the small wharf, we found waiting some 20 or 30 men, of all colors, from the pale Yankee to the ebony Congo, all armed. A more motley and villainous-looking crew never trod the deck of Captain Kidd's ships. We saw at once with whom we had to deal, deserters from the army and navy of both sides, with a mixture of Spaniards and Cubans, outlaws and renegades. A burly villain towering head and shoulders above his companions, and whose shaggy head scorned any covering, hailed us in broken English and asked who we were. End quote. Breckinridge's party of refugees narrowly avoided detection here. They succeeded in procuring some provisions before disappearing across the sea. In the days that followed, the various comers and goers also dispersed, continuing on to wherever they were headed. The refugees went home. The soldiers departed. 
and the peddlers of wares evaporated. Many of Miami's homesteaders themselves even seemed to have disappeared, perhaps drawn by new opportunities opening up in the now destitute South. With the war over, peace once more returned to Biscayne Bay. As abruptly as the hubbub began, a near total silence settled on Dade County, which reached one of the lowest populations it had ever seen. And it awaited, once again, the chance to fulfill its destiny. By the way, here's a bit of history that's still around today. The Wagner's house, which stood at its original location near the Colmer Metro Rail Station for more than 120 years, was moved in 1979 to make way for the Metro Rail. Preserved by the Dade Heritage Trust, this wood-framed building, an exemplar of antebellum Miami architecture, can now be found beside the Fort Dallas Longhouse at Loomis Park by the Miami River. 